0: This week on Two-Faced Wrestling Talk.
1: The Rainmaker is headlining MSG. We talk about the semifinals and finals of the New Japan Cup and give our favorite matches from the tournament. We will also look at how the G1 Supercard in New York is shaping up. With just over a week until WrestleMania, the final pieces of the show are fitting into place for WWE's biggest show of the year. We will discuss the week's happenings on Raw and SmackDown, which includes a surprise title change that could change the main event at WrestleMania. And we bring you part one of an extended interview with Boy Meets World executive producer and writer Mark Blutman, who talks about his wrestler stand-up persona, bringing Vader onto Boy Meets World, plus his thoughts on this year's build to Mania. All that and your feedback is next.
0: WrestlingInc.com brings you Two-Faced Wrestling Talk, the podcast that goes beyond WWE and goes in-depth on NJPW, AEW, ROH, PWG, and more. Also featuring fun pop culture and wrestling crossovers, listener Q&As, and extended discussions about wrestling topics past, present, and future. Now, here's your host, Kelsey
2: and welcome to Two-Faced Wrestling Talk. I'm joined as I am every week by my co-host, Paul.
0: Why are you beating
1: on me? <laughs> I
2: don't know. If you're watching the YouTube version, I've kind of banged my fist on his shoulder.
1: A lot of rage here early in the show, apparently.
2: <laughs> I don't know. We've got a great show. Maybe that's why I'm all raged up and yeah. excited.
1: Yes, maybe.
2: <laughs> We've got lots in you know, store for you guys on this episode of Two-Faced Wrestling Talk, we've got a really great interview with the co-executive producer and writer of Boy Meets World. Man, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. It's not just about Boy Meets World, it's about a lot to do with wrestling because he's been a lifelong wrestling fan. So we'll hear a lot more about that in the second block.
1: Yeah, Mark uh, told us uh, prior to your long, long interview that we're breaking into a couple of parts because uh, there's so much good stuff there. But he said he likes to listen to a lot of wrestling podcasts, and we're one of them. He said he uh, likes to fall asleep to with, you, with, well, with <laughs> with kidding. podcasts on. Uh, and one of ours, is, uh, one of the the podcasts that he likes to fall asleep to is ours. And I told him uh, it's not the first time that people have said they I put them to sleep. So,
2: <laughs> womp, womp, womp. <laughs> whatever.
1: And, and not in a good way, like a coquina clutch. I put people to sleep because I bore the hell out of them. All right, well, let's uh, quickly get to the plugs because uh, where people can find you is very important because you've got two new shows.
2: Yep, you can find me on Twitter especially at SuperKickingIt, S-U-P-E-R-K-I-C-K-I-N-G-I-T. You could find our show on Twitter as well at 2 Pod T-W-O-F-A-C-E-D-P-O-D. And uh, if you stay tuned to my Twitter, you'll be able to vote in polls. I put out polls all the time, especially for the last few weeks. You can have easy access to my two new live shows, Kelsey Likes and Either Or. Either Or is up on my Twitter right now if you look a little bit down my feed on my profile page, you'll see it says either or, Suzuki or Osprey. I broke it down, and I had to choose one, and I chose. I made a decision.
1: <laughs> Which is shocking.
2: <laughs> it was it was really difficult and hard, but I did it.
1: <laughs> we also want to thank our good friends at St. Arnold. Remember St. Arnold Brewing in Houston, Texas. Delicious beer and uh, great supporters of the show, as well as mybookie.ag. Remember to sign up using the promo code It. And you can get all set to bet on the uh, the elite eight in the uh, NCAA tournament this weekend. But uh, now it's time to give our opinions on the latest wrestling shows, news, and developments. It's time for headlines. <music> And not a uh, loaded week of headlines, but uh, certainly some good stuff to talk about, especially when it comes to the New Japan Cup, which, which reached its uh, conclusion. And we know who's going to face Jay White at G1 Supercard. The semifinals were last Saturday. The finals were last Sunday. Let's start with the semifinals and uh, a really great match between Ishii and Okada.
2: Yeah, and I personally think that that match should have been the main event of that night. I agree. Because to me, it was the more entertaining match. But of course, Tanahashi, you know, he's the ace. I feel like that's why they put him as the main event. And also because Sonata's from the place that the show took place at. So, well... From nearby Nearby, yeah. Yes, so they were really, really, really rooting for Sonata. I mean, the crowd was so loud. And that's unusual for a New Japan pro wrestling crowd. So to me, I guess that's why they put it as the main event. But the Okada Ishii match, they just... They were brutal. They pulled out all the stops. And I love how Okada brought a more serious, aggressive side. Because usually at the beginning of almost every Okada match, he'll get somebody, you know against the ropes and then he'll do the where he looks like he's about to hardcore chop them mm-hmm. but instead he just lightly double overhand chops them and then kind of walks away. Him.
1: Yeah, pats yeah. him.
2: It's, it's a very like light kind of and it's pat. comical. Yeah. Yeah. And he usually smiles, walks away and the crowd claps, you know. But this time he didn't do that and I think that says a lot about what in storyline he thinks of Ishii and also probably in reality because Ishii's just such a tough, brutal really hardcore guy and he always is really really dependable for New Japan Pro Wrestling and I loved his performance in this match and it's just a shame that yeah he had a great performance but where is he on the card for G1 Supercard
1: right yeah I mean Ishii had a great tournament and we're going to talk a lot about that uh, as we go through some of our uh, favorite matches of New Japan Cup and hear from you guys as well but yeah I mean it was the normal brutality of Ishii I mean There was a stretch where he was just chopping and battering Okada's chest. And Okada's chest looked horrible.
2: (laughs) Oh, God, it did. It was so red and gross looking. Also, you know, Ishii was egging on Okada by kind of taking his heel and brushing it against his head really hard. And then actually later, Okada did the same thing to Mm Ishii. I loved that kind of duplicity, one doing it and then the other doing it, almost like a parallel. And um, just so many great elements in the match we wrote two pages of flipping <laughs> notes
1: yeah i loved uh, one of the best things i i thought was really kind of a cool you know a facial expression can tell a story and ishii smacks okada and okada kind of gets up and smiles and motions at him as if he's saying come on is, is that all you got kind of thing it, it was he didn't have to say anything but the body language really told the story and i thought that was kind of okada's Facial expressions are always really good, I think. I mean, he, you can kind of deduce what he's thinking by his facial expressions.
2: And, you know, we've talked a lot about that in the past few weeks, little little elements or touches in a match that kind of add to it and make it even better than it already would have been with just the in-ring work. And that's another example of what we've been talking about for a while now. And I love Okada's facial expressions just like you do. Another great touch was just all the reversals. Mm-hmm. So many reversals. Like one time, Ishii headbutted to get out of the Rainmaker. But that was just one of the many times he got out of the Rainmaker. And uh, it was just intense. I was questioning, especially after Abushi lost. Right. I was thinking, okay, it's definitely Okada now. Right. And so going into this match, I was like, it's going to be Okada. You know, that makes the most sense. But this during the match had me questioning things the way Ishii just kept countering I was like it could be Ishii yeah i was kind of getting no. my hopes up and that's what a good match does
1: right no i thought i mean they certainly okada was the logical choice going into that final four but you know for all that Ishii has done it would have been kind of cool to see him in that main event at G1 Supercard but you know okada probably would have made more sense because he's got such a a brand in the United States where people know him because yes. of his long run with the championship belt and, and things like that and his battles with Kenny Omega.
2: And the awesome entrance that people love when you know the fake Okada bucks come <laughs> down and everything. So it's really interactive and people really love him. But I tell you what, when I was in person at the first G1 show not that long ago, about like a year and a half ago in California, Kenny Omega went against Ishii for the U.S. belt, and the crowd went wild. That was one of the best matches, and people were really, really into Ishii. They were behind him, and they wanted him to win. Even as popular as Kenny Omega was... People were cheering for Ishii to win well, the belt.
1: That, that iconic image of Ishii grabbing onto the top rope with his teeth. Oh, That yes. was great. The-, the
2: crowd erupted, and it didn't even come across on TV the way it was in person. It was so loud in there when he grasped that rope with his teeth. Oh, incredible. I mean, and there was more headbutts in the match than the one I described about him reversing out of the Rainmaker. There was one where literally Okada did the Rainmaker to Ishii and he like literally didn't budge and then he headbutts him and then mm-hmm. he suplexes him I believe man that was a crazy sequence and just the sequences kept getting crazier and crazier so much so that Excalibur was able to fit in his yes. patented unbelievable <laughs> little comment but it really was unbelievable well, is the thing and
1: he gave that great one great a bit of insight you know just from a wrestler's perspective about Okada you know when he almost got uh, pinned
2: yeah, there was a point. Or where, submit, I guess. Yes, yeah, submitted. There was a point where Okada almost tapped out, but he just was able to m- make the ropes, and that's because he's so tall. But the way Excalibur said it was, the only thing that saved Okada was his length. Yeah. Because his foot barely got to the ropes, and like somebody like Ishii, if the hold was reversed and Ishi was in the hold, Ishi wouldn't have been able to reach that rope because he's a lot shorter. So I just love the way Excalibur painted that on commentary and really made you think that Okada could have lost right then and there.
1: Well, and then there was a couple points where Ishi hits lariats repeatedly and Okada just gets out and again, the you know, there are there are near falls that suck you in especially uh, more, probably as much so in New Japan than anywhere else because you you know, the crowd isn't so biased for one or the other sometimes. And so they're so into it, no matter what, that you get sucked into it. And those near falls seem even more exciting.
2: They really do. And I think you just hit the nail right on the head because it's one of the most enjoyable things about New Japan Emperor Wrestling is that the people who are there care about the wrestling. And it makes you care about the wrestling. And it's just a very honored and respected form of art over there and you could tell that that comes across when you're watching from home and I think that adds to the whole experience and it's one of the reasons why I love new Japan pro wrestling so much well
1: I love the ending of this match okada hits a jumping tombstone then hits a rainmaker but what it was what happened that, after that I thought was really cool Okada helping Ishii up shaking his hand and rate and uh, Ishi raising okada's hand uh, I mean obviously they're stable mates but uh, I thought it was a good moment because it, it just kind of showed mutual respect, I think, for such a great match.
2: Yeah, and Ishii doesn't normally do that type no. of thing. A lot of times if he does lose, he just kind of gets out of the ring without you know, staying in there, especially raising someone else's hand. And as you alluded to, they are stable mates, but just I think it was extra special just because how stoic Ishii usually is and how he kind of just leaves the ring a lot of times. So to see him stay in there and for them to have that special moment, I think was one of the highlights of the match, even though it wasn't even, like, in the middle of the match. It was something that happened afterwards.
1: And Ishii had such a great tournament. Again, we're going to talk about uh, him in a couple of our uh, our, our top three matches of uh, G1 Supercard, so we'll talk more about him and G1 Supercard uh, later. But uh, let's go to the other semifinal, eh. S- Sonata and Tanahashi, and your little effect right there kind of sums up how we kind of felt about it. But we both said... Combining our lack of excitement, I guess, for that semifinal, but also having to follow that amazing Ishi Okada match really was hard, I think, to get into the tanahashi Sonata match.
2: I really think it should have been reversed only because knowing the styles and knowing the type of matches both would be, I mean, New Japan had to have known that the Okada-Ishii match would have been brutal and crazy. And apparently Will Ospreay tweeted out that people were like in the back. Giving a standing ovation when they were coming <laughs> back. Um, so to me, they must have known that Okada Ishii would have been more brutal. So why didn't they make that the main event? As we speculated, yeah, it probably had a lot to do with Sonata and how he was from that area where the show was taking place at. But still, this match just to me, it couldn't follow and beat what came before it. So it was at the mercy of really its place on the card. However, you know, maybe we're just biased. Because, <laughs> you know, we're not huge Sonata fans and we're not huge Tanahashi fans. Now, we don't have anything against those wrestlers. They're just not our personal New Japan favorites. And again, if you guys love both of them and if you love this match, that's perfectly okay. Tweet us why you loved it. It's great. And perfectly okay to agree to disagree. And you got to say that every show because it's my tagline, and I truly believe in it.
1: And I have to roll my eyes.
2: (laughs) Well, a lot of people think it's not okay to have differences of opinion, but that's that's crazy, really. I think that's what makes wrestling talk so fascinating. If we all agreed, why would we even be talking about wrestling? This is true. So that's why I think it's important to say that. So having said that important thing.
1: But, you know, it's funny. As much as everybody loves Tanahashi, I think one of the – Most intriguing parts of this entire match was the crowd being so behind Sonata that they were actually kind of booing Tanahashi, which is seemingly unheard of in Japan.
2: Right, and that was really one of the things that stuck out to us the most, which isn't saying a lot, because literally that happened before (laughs) the match even begun, so that was our main highlight, really. And then, yes, like I said, you know, it's okay to disagree and everything, but we just didn't like it that much. So, that match ended with Sonata reversing Tanahashi's offense into the skull end, and then he basically kept him in a body scissors, and Tanahashi actually tapped out. Which I was surprised. And that's a big deal (laughs) for Sonata. Really, the company has given him a little bit of a push there, having him tap out the ace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I think that says a lot about what they think of him, and that was a big story of the match on commentary about how far Sonata has come, about how he was actually not accepted by the New Japan Dojo at first. So he had to go out and wrestle places on his own. And then he came back and then was accepted the second time around. So I guess there's a little bit of having to prove himself. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they kind of made that a story throughout the match on commentary and also into the match with Okada. And let's get into that match actually, because we're going from a Sonata match that I didn't really like that much to a Sonata match that I loved. I loved the Sonata Okada finals of the new Japan Cup. That was a wonderful hard hitting match. It was long, and both men really, really excelled with their offense and it's just it was hard hitting and Sonata stepped up. I really that might have been my favorite match of his of the whole tournament.
1: One of the iconic things was early to me. He uh, he goes to hit a a moonsault, standing moonsault, lands on his feet and then drop kicks Okada. It was all so smooth. I thought that was really awesome, but speaking of drop kicks, to me the thing
2: Oh yeah. that
1: was the maybe the iconic moment of the whole tournament. Okada's drop kick off the top rope was a thing of beauty. If you haven't seen it, you've got to go to find it somewhere online New Japan World. If you don't have a subscription, Heck. I'm sure there's a gif of it somewhere. Or Sign something.
2: up for New Japan for Wrestling. Just bite the bullet. It's worth it, man. It was, it's worth it. It was, I mean, he's got
1: the best drop kick in the business, anyway. But this,
2: I just, I'm like, I'm
1: almost getting goosebumps thinking about it because it was so awesome. He's in midair, and it almost looks like he freezes in midair. It was like in slow motion. He was floating there. Yeah, it brings his knees almost to his his stomach. And then extends out, and this is all off the top rope, and it was awesome. And the announcers even were were talking about, like, you know, it, he froze in midair. Again. And so
2: we rewound it, and it was even better the second time when we rewatched it again. It was like, it is like he was pausing <laughs> in midair. It was so crazy. You're right. I almost forgot about that. That's why I, I exclaimed, heck, <laughs> yeah, that's the greatest part. Well, well
1: um, you know what it reminded me of? And this this you're too young for this, but it reminded me... Of, there were times Michael Jordan would float to the rim and it looked like he was doing it in slow motion because he would get so high and it was so spectacularly picturesque. And that's what it reminded me of is is, is grace that almost happens like it's happening in slow motion because it's so amazing.
2: Hey, man, I've seen Michael Jordan play basketball In Space Space Jam.
1: Jam. He couldn't see that coming (laughs) a million miles away.
2: (laughs) But they do show him playing basketball at the beginning and then with the tunes. So anyway, I am old enough to know. But, um like you said, so many great moments, and I think something that we talked about in Okada's other match of the weekend, the insane amount of reversals that he had with Ishii, he had just as many Mm -hmm. reversals with Sonata. It was like every time you thought a Rainmaker would happen or a Skullin would happen, they would reverse it, and it just kept happening and happening, and that was one of my favorite parts of the whole match, because every time you thought, okay, this is going to be it, oh no, he gets out of it, and that's what makes you kind of second-guess everything you thought was going to happen before, and I think that's what great wrestling does. It makes you question things.
1: Sonata was so close, again, with the near falls, and the crowd was, I mean, I wrote it down, on fire for Sonata. I mean, it was as loud a New Japan crowd as as you're ever going to hear. I mean, it was crazy how loud it was, but in the end, Okada reversed a skull end into a tombstone, hit the Rainmaker, and won the match, and so Okada will advance to face Jay White. But of course, Jay White had to make sure he made an appearance as well.
2: Of course. I like how also in the uh, undercard matches before the finals, he was saying, it doesn't matter which one of you wins. My name is still going to be the name on this belt. You see this nameplate? It's going to remain the same after G1 Supercard. And actually on commentary, you wrote down a very interesting comment. They said that, you know, White has only wrestled twice in this month. Whereas, you know, big matches, right. whereas Okada has wrestled 16 times. Right,
1: right. I mean, the workload for Okada leading up in the month to G1 Supercard is crazy. And uh, another thing that they mentioned during the match that I thought was interesting, the New Japan Cup winner has only gone on to beat the champion in in uh, four times out of 17 attempts. So, wow. So winning the New Japan Cup is not a guarantee that you're going to win the championship.
2: Yeah, and speaking of that championship match at G1 Supercard, I know we're going to get more into the card later, but to me, like, can we at least talk about our predictions for Okada and Jay White now? Because I'm thinking there's no way that Okada can win back the belt at G1 Supercard. I can't imagine New Japan being okay with that happening there. I'm thinking it's going to look like it's going to happen, and then maybe you know they've been promoting El Phantasmo, A lot. Like, before every single New Japan Cup Mm -hmm. set of matches, they would play his video package. So I'm wondering, will he make his debut and pop up? Because he's supposed to be a part of Bullet Club. That was revealed in the video package. So maybe he comes in and interferes with that match, and it leads to Jay White retaining.
1: Well, every Jay White match has some sort of interference, so that wouldn't be a surprise. I like the exchange at the end, too. Jay White says, You've never beat me. You never will. You will be laying... On the mat, looking up at the world's most famous arena, and then Okada countered with, Jay White, you're not on my level.
2: I like that <laughs> a lot because, you know, that's something that a lot of people talk about. I even talked about it in our show last week. I said that I'm thinking Okada has to be in the main event because he's really the man. And then I said, well, yeah, you know, Jay White's the champion technically, but Okada's still considered the main event draw. So to me, yeah, he's got a lot to prove, Jay White. I think Okada's statement is actually true. I think... Jay White is great. He's one of the best heels right now. But is he on Okada's level? I don't know. I guess he's got to answer that at G1 Supercard.
1: Now, the rest of that night, uh, prior to the uh, the finals of the New Japan Cup, a lot of matches, tag team matches, and other things that are setting up things for G1 Supercard, and maybe some other stuff as well. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, they seem to be setting up Ishii versus Evil at some point. I thought maybe... At G1 Supercard, no. but as we mentioned, Ishii noticeably absent from G1 Supercard, although I have maybe a hope and a prediction there. We'll see. Uh, tai Chi looks like he's going to get a future never open weight uh, championship match against Osprey after pinning Osprey. Uh, Sabre and Tanahashi squaring off, and now we know they're going to battle for the British title at G1 Supercard in another tag match. Ibushi. And Naito square off, and now we know that they're going to square off a G1 Supercard. So some interesting stuff there. But there was one other championship match on that card on Sunday. The United States Championship between Juice Robinson and Chase Owens and Serious Juice.
2: (laughs) Yes, very serious. Not the fun-loving juice that we get in Lifeblood or with Finn Juice. It was he took off his hat, and they've been calling it like the Willy Wonka hat. Or Chase Owens, I think, said that. (laughs) So he took off his crazy attire, didn't play to the crowd, and just ran to the Mm -hmm. ring, no bull, no frills, just got right to business. I kind of like that Juice. And, you know, let's talk about Juice for a second, because a lot of people, especially my buds, smart to death, uh, John and Warren, kind of talking about Juice being a B-plus player. And I don't agree with Juice as a B-plus player. I think he's done everything the company's asked him to do. If you look at his time in NXT to where he came and elevated himself in New Japan for Wrestling, it's incredible the difference between where he was and where he is. Now, the booking has been a problem, and that's not on Juice. The booking where he lost a lot of matches in the G1 last year, that was atrocious, and he had the title at that point, I believe. Then again, he regains the title, And he loses again early on in this New Japan Cup tournament. And this set up that, you know, his loss there set up this match Mm -hmm. against Chase Owen for the U.S. title, which actually was great storytelling, and I kind of liked that because it also elevated Owens to go against Juice. It was a really, really entertaining match. I enjoyed it. And, you know, I don't get to see Owens in a lot of singles matches, so I thought this was a perfect highlight for him as well, even though he didn't win. Juice desperately needed that win. My basic point is I think Juice is an A player, not A plus, you know, but I think he's a steady, dependable guy. We talked about his promo skills. They're awesome. They remind me of Dusty Rhodes, and that wouldn't be a surprise considering he studied under Dusty Rhodes back when he was in NXT. So to me, Juice has all these qualities I like. I like the zany personality that some people probably don't like. And I love his promo ability. And I think he's a dependable wrestler as well. The only fault I see is the way he's been booked as champion. And again, how could you fault Juice for that?
1: Well, I'm going to take it a little differently in that, first of all, I don't think being a B-plus player is like a huge slap in the face. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a B-plus player. You know, there are... I mean, to me, your Okada's your A, Suzuki's your A, you know, those are, Naito's your A. You know, so, I mean, if you're saying Juice is just a level below that, I kind of am okay with that. I see. It's the second time, actually, B-plus came up in, in WWE this week, as or in last week. Kofi was referred to as a B-plus player as well. I'm fine with that, too. I, I don't see Kofi as an A player. I see him exactly... How you just described Juice, and I think that's why it's okay to be a B-plus player. Steady, reliable, you know, going to get good matches. But is he going to be the main event of a bill? Probably not.
2: But if they booked the championship better, he could be the main wow. event of a secondary show. He could be, in, which would make him at least an A-minus player. Now we're getting into super <laughs> technicalities right now. But I'm just saying... Juice was on the rise. Remember how over he was with the crowd last year? Right. Before his U.S. title run. I feel like things have kind of gone downhill for him since he won the championship the first time. And then again, the second time, you know, if he doesn't continue being serious Juice, it might continue going downward. So to me, I'm more questioning the booking because all the elements were there, and the crowd was very much behind him as of different points in 2018 last year so to me one could argue if he's a b plus or a minus (laughs) so we can agree to disagree on that
1: well let's uh you kind of hinted at something too and something else i wanted to address this u.s championship i don't feel it i know why they created it you know it was it was really a another platform to get over omega in the united states not that he wasn't already over but you know for that show that you were at The G One Special Show there, I think I don't know if this belt holds a lot of prestige. Maybe because it's so new. Maybe that's why I feel that way. But you look at the prestige of the Intercontinental Belt there. You know, WWE, the US and Intercontinental Belts are basically interchangeable, right? Right. US Championship in New Japan certainly doesn't hold that kind of prestige yet, and I'm not sure it ever will. It might, but...
2: There's a lot of titles in New Japan, and that's some people's kind of qualms, one of their qualms with New Japan Pro Wrestling. I don't have a problem with it. However, I don't think there needs to be junior heavyweight tag titles. I feel like that's something that could go away, especially now that the Bucks aren't, Part of the promotion, and even when Bucks moved up to the heavyweight division, I mean that junior tag division has seemed very, very thin. I mean, people who aren't going to be considered juniors much longer—Ishimori, Shingo—you know those people technically are wrestling as juniors, but they're—I don't think they're going to stay juniors. So to me, you're working with an insanely thin junior Mm -hmm. tag division. That's a belt that could go away right there. That way, maybe you could focus a little bit more on the U.S. Championship
1: yeah i agree. elevate it you know i i, I agree i I don't, I don't think there needs to be a junior heavyweight tag team belt um i i mean like you said there are a lot of a lot of belts in new japan and certainly that has uh, been a criticism uh to wrap up the the match uh juice of course had to contend with uh Jotto and the kendo stick and uh bullet club which oh by the way Love the Bullet Club New York shirts. Oh, I need one. Oh, I, I need need. She needs I, one.
2: I do need one, and I must have it, and I will have <laughs> I'm it. I'm sure you will. <laughs> it looks awesome, though. It says, you know, B-C-N-Y, and it's got the Statue of Liberty with, like, the Bullet Club Sash on. Mm-hmm. So oh, well designed. Looks
1: awesome. Yeah. It looked, I, I was actually the one that pointed it out, not you.
2: Once you pointed it out, <laughs> I was course. like, Yeah,
1: then I was whoa. like, oh, I wish I hadn't pointed that
2: out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's your fault. You're fueling my addictions here.
1: Uh, Juice at the end hits a left handed God to Chase Owens, to Fale, to Giotto, then to Pulp Friction, and it looks like they're setting up a Fale-Juice match. You would think at G1 Supercard because of Juice, but again, when we saw the the Supercard card, it's not on there.
2: So, you know, yes, it's not on the G1 card, but... Not everything that they've been building up can be on that card. I mean, the card would be five hours long, (laughs) seven hours long. It'd be insane long. I mean, it's going to be very long as it is. Yeah. But rewinding back to this match, Juice looked really good, and he overcame overwhelming odds to beat Owens. And I like that because he looked so bad in that loss in the first round. So I think this at least made up for it a little bit, that he looked so dominant when the odds were basically stacked against him. Because, I mean, everyone kept coming at him. I mean, right. He, he somehow managed to still beat Owens after all that interference. So, yeah, props to Juice. That really made his character look a little bit better, makes the championship look a little bit better. But, yeah, not everybody could be on G1 Supercard, unfortunately. Although I wish a lot more people could, like Suzuki.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that. And we're not going to go through G1 Supercard in, in depth this week because we're going to, obviously, next week. But we're just going to do it from the New Japan perspective. And... Bully Ray has issued an open challenge. Everybody assumed it was going to be Flip Gordon. Obviously, the news this week that Flip Gordon's injury is worse and not looking promising that he's going to be in G1 Supercard. So, to kind of bring what you said into it, I would love for the open challenge, Suzuki's music hits and comes down, and it's Suzuki and Bully Ray. Come on now. That would be (laughs) fantastic. They would beat the hell out of each other. Or, my second choice would be Ishii.
2: I mean, how do you choose which one would be better, which one you want to see more to me?
1: I just don't want to see Cheeseburger come running down. You know what I mean? I I want it to be somebody like Suzuki or Ishii who could legitimately beat the hell out of Bully Ray.
2: Not that I have anything against (laughs) Cheeseburger, but we've seen it. (laughs) You've seen him against Bully. You know, I do want to see Suzuki because evil against evil but there's only one of the evil people that you love secretly <laughs> and it's suzuki oh gosh it would be so great that's a great idea paul and i gotta say i really don't know which scenario i want uh, to happen I, more i
1: just want one of the two to happen i have yeah. to agree with you uh ishimori will defend the junior heavyweight championship against dragon lee and bandito evil and sonata have been inserted it's now in that tag team match which is interesting evil and sonata versus god versus villain enterprises versus the briscoes we don't know what titles are going to be on the line i guess this is their way of getting the briscoes in there and evil and sonata this this almost feels like wrestlemania where they're trying to make sure everybody gets in
2: that's (laughs) the thing and that's why i'm really disappointed with this change like i know i'm going to come off as really harsh here and people might disagree Mm -hmm. and that's fine i don't it's okay to disagree it is wow (laughs) i
1: had no idea
2: i don't like the insertion especially of evil and sonata yes they want them on the card that's great The match makes a lot of sense with the Briscoes, God, and PCO and Brody. If they just kept it as those three teams, that would still work a little bit more. Although, I think the story was more so there with Briscoes versus God. So it could have worked out if at Baltimore, the title changed back hands to the Briscoes. But we don't think that's going to happen because this match is set in stone. And like I said, I just feel like it's really random and no story at all that Evil and Sonata are in there. Yes, Evil and Sonata have history with some people in the match, especially God. I just don't think that all four teams being in there is logical. And it just makes it less exciting when people were really, really hyped up for the possibility of anything where God and the Briscoes are meeting in the same ring. More so 2-1-2.
1: Well, we'll talk more G1 Supercard next week, and obviously we're going to, I've got a couple points that I'll, I'll circle into G1 Supercard, but we asked you what were your favorite matches of New Japan Cup, and uh, we're going to get through some of the answers and give you our top three as well. So, So why don't you start?
2: Okay, at Don't Brass Out, he said his top three matches of the tournament were Sonata versus Suzuki, Yanu versus Cabana was hilarious, and Sonata versus Okada, and he followed it up with saying, I just wish it was Suzuki versus Jay White at G1 Supercard.
1: You and me both, Don't don't Brass Out, and I know I I shocked the world last week when I said Yanu and Colt was actually pretty entertaining, because I'm not a big fan of comedy wrestling, so... I have no problem with that being in the top three, which I know you're shocked by.
2: I am. I wouldn't put
1: it in my top three, but it wasn't appalling to me like many comedy matches are.
2: It wasn't like you'd be saying, Flippin' Yanu is in your top three. Get out of here. Like you used to say stuff like that.
1: At Save Us Marcus kind of gave us a stream of consciousness answer to this because he said, I'm still working my way through it, but Ibushi and Naito is definitely on the list so far. Then later he's like, Zack just tapped Ibushi. OMFG and then he he follows that up a few minutes later by I may be premature but ahead Suzuki and Sonata to the list we don't know if he got through the rest of the tournament but those were uh three of his favorites
2: yeah I liked his uh comment about oh my god he couldn't believe that Abushi <laughs> was out of the tournament much like all of us yeah. and I like how in the comments we see his reaction after everyone already had that reaction it was just cool to see somebody have that yep. in real time almost in my comments of my twitter so then we go to Teddy at Zelanthus 89 He said he really enjoyed Juice versus Chase, even though Juice won. So that's the initial match, of course, he's referencing, the one in the actual tournament, not the championship match that followed later. Then we've got R-L-A-N-G-E-L-E-S. He says Ishii versus Okada. Osprey versus Archer and Yanu versus Colt. And of course, the finals with Okada versus Sonata. So you put in a little extra there. That's okay. It's hard for me to choose two.
1: Well, the the previous one only put one, so we we can take four from the following one. Uh, Add Zach Shy 130, uh, Suzuki versus Kojima, Ibushi versus Saber, and Okada versus Sonata.
2: I believe that's the only person who said Kojima versus Suzuki. I liked that match a lot. But again, there's some other matches in the tournament that outshined that for me personally. But I know Zach loves Suzuki, as do I. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Suzuki, I like a lot of his other matches that he's had the end of last year, some into this year. But in the tournament, he had some good ones, but none that I can really say were my favorite. No. Then we go to good guy Dave at Dave Pizeski. I can finally answer this because it took him a little bit longer to finish. He says his number one is Sonata and Okada. Number two, Ishii versus Yoshihashi. And number three, Yanu versus Cabana. And you're right, it's hard to pick just three. I originally had Sonata and Suzuki and Abushi versus Xaver Jr. in the top two. Big props to Shoda Ominu for amazing work as well. Then he followed it up with explanations why he chose what he chose. Sonata and Okada just had amazing wrestling, and the crowd was insane. Ishii vs. Yoshihashi had the best story. And Yanu vs. Cabana was amazing character work and was hilarious. Seriously, effortless comedy like that is underrated in pro wrestling. I loved them all.
1: Yep, all good choices, and... uh Yoshihashi is going to figure in a few of these answers, which is surprising.
2: It is surprising, and it's actually funny. Yoshihashi has been a big topic of discussion. Uh, our friends that we mentioned earlier, Smart to Death, they have been saying, you know, them and company have been saying, they don't understand how people can get into Yoshihashi. He's just not exciting. And a lot of people seem to have that same sentiment. Long ago, when I was first getting you into New Japan Pro Wrestling, you know. You were trying to figure out who was who, and you were like, who's this guy again? He always looks so sleepy and stuff. (laughs) What's this guy's name again? I was like, it's Yoshihashi with the weird hair. (laughs) And then you basically nicknamed him Sleepy like from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And why?
1: Well, he looks like one of the Seven Dwarves Sleepy. I mean, just pull up Google images of Sleepy from the Seven Dwarves, and like five or six in, there's two that... You could put Yoshihashi's face in there because it looks like (laughs) Yoshihashi. It's
2: ridiculous. So, yeah, I think Yoshihashi has a subdued personality, and that's why a lot of people can't really get into his wrestling. He's got weird facial expressions. It's almost like he doesn't use his face to express anything. There's no movement there in his eyebrows or his mouth, like no smile, no smirk, no grimacing teeth. However, having said that uh, kind of criticism against him, I think in the tournament itself, he had some great matches, and he really performed really well, and this could be a new Yoshihashi, a non-sleepy Yoshihashi, for all we know, but once we told our friends that we called him sleepy, they just ran with it, (laughs) they thought it was hilarious, so we wanted to give the origin of why we started calling him sleepy. Right,
1: right, and uh, he is certainly, seemingly on a uh, little bit of an uptick uh, when it comes to New Japan. At Ulrich Zach says Sonata versus Okada, Okada versus Ishi and Ibushi versus Naito.
2: Good picks. Then we've got at Str909 Naito versus Ibushi, Ishii versus Okada, and Okada versus Sonata. So multiple Okada <laughs> picks there
1: yep. too. Uh Tyler forms at the Real Forno says uh, Tanahashi Umino, which was really very you know that's a great one to put on the list because. The crowd was so behind the Young Lion, it was really good. Osprey versus Archer, Okada Ishii, Ishii Taichi, and Okada Osprey.
2: So he gave a top five. I know yeah. it's hard to choose. That's fine. I have like three honorable mentions, <laughs> so I feel your pain. You can't really narrow it down. It's too hard. Then we go to at PCH Nobog, Okada versus Ishii is... Ishii physically made of iron? <laughs> Suzuki versus Sonata. Suzuki Gun versus Lij is such an awesome feud. Naido versus Ibushi. Naido, I believe, is incapable of having a bad match. He's my favorite wrestler in New Japan for a reason. Great reasonings there. I loved all of your explanations.
1: Uh, next one is at Axel Rules 21, Okada Ishii, Naido Ibushi, and Ibushi versus ZSJ. Many honorable mentions. We're with you there. <laughs> I
2: know. Like I said, three. Uh, for me
1: next one at tjbovr all of them are tied but seriously such a good tournament but reading through the people's list i want to add some matches that I feel are being overlooked which is fair juice versus chase ishii versus yoshihashi and big mike versus okada which really was a good match as well and that was The beginning of the tournament where Okada's chest really started to get opened up.
2: Yeah, and then it just got worse and worse and worse as the tournament went on. And Okada had brutal matches with literally almost everybody he faced in the entire tournament. But great kind of underrated pick there. I like that he threw that in because no one else, I believe, picked that in their list. So good shout out there. At Sarastro of Mog. Abushi versus Naito, Ishi versus Okada, and Yanu versus Cabana. I also really dug Ishi versus Tai Chi. That was a good match, despite Tai Chi being in it. <laughs> <laughs> then we've got L. Rance, Yanu versus Cabana, Naito versus Abushi, and Zack Saber Jr. versus Abushi.
1: It really is interesting how many people have put Yano and Cabana into their top three.
2: It was just such a funny match. It's like, it's hard to do wrestling comedy right. And as Dave said earlier in his list, he said it's the perfect way to do it. And, you know, you can't go wrong with picking that as part of your picks because, I don't know, I think it's kind of difficult to do it right.
1: Finally, at B-S-C-H-W-I-N-G 22, Ibushi versus Naito, Okada versus Ishii. And Osprey versus Archer. So, thanks for everybody submitting theirs. And now it's time to give our submissions. And uh, I am going to go, I guess, from three to one. Uh, number three, Okada versus Sonata, the final. Okada versus Ishii in the semifinals is number two. And Osprey versus Archer is my first choice. I should say, and a few people have put in Naito versus Ibushi. Going into this tournament, that was my favorite. First round match on paper, but I didn't think it was as good as it could be. But obviously they're setting up for a much better match at G1 Supercar.
2: You know, I am with you 100% on I thought on paper that could steal the whole tournament. Mm -hmm. But after seeing it, it wasn't my favorite at all. So I did not include that in my list. Spoiler alert. Um, And a lot of people did include it, but just as many people did not include it into their top three list. So then, here's mine, and I'm going to go backwards just like you. Number three, Ishii versus Nagata. And I really feel like Ishii had the best performances, second only to maybe Okada. And he just had great match after great match. And I think what sticks out about the Nagata match specifically is just Nagata's mouth full of blood as his eyes Mm roll back. And just two established guys, two who I think are kind of like legends in New Japan Pro wrestling, especially Nagata, of course, is a real, real legend, just going toe-to-toe and bringing everything they have, and it was brutal as hell. And to me, what was could have been similar on the list, Kojima versus Suzuki, but to me, the Nagata, the visuals of that match with the blood and everything, and just the hard-hitting nature of it, it just beats it just by a little bit. Then my number two, the final match, Okada versus Sonata. I wasn't... Going into this match thinking it could even possibly be on my top three. And that's why it deserves to be so high on my top three. Mm -hmm. Because it surprised me. I'm not a huge Sonata fan, as I've stated before last week and then in the show today. But this match really, really, really exceeded my expectations. And so for that reason, it's on the list. It was great. I enjoyed every second of it. And then number one, Okada versus Ishii. We talked about it at length during this show had so many moments I loved, all the reversals, Okada really taking Ishii very, very seriously, and I think that's why I took the match even more seriously than I would have going into it originally. So to me, for all those reasons that we talked about in the beginning of the show and more, that deserves to be number one. My honorable mentions, I have three. It's terrible. I couldn't narrow it down. Tanahashi versus Uminu, I loved that match because I didn't know really who Umino was and he exceeded my expectations much like the Okada Ishii match did. Osprey versus Archer that actually made your actual top 3 and originally it was in my top 3 but just there were so many other good matches especially with Ishi that I had to edge it out and put it in the honorable mentions instead even though man Osprey doing the stormbreaker to to Archer mm-hmm. that was insane <laughs> and I marked out when it happened as you referenced a few episodes ago I was right. super invested in that match right. I was like yelling when <laughs> Osprey won and when he did the stormbreaker and everything and Wincing when I thought he was going to lose, and it was just great. I was very invested, and then finally the match people were referencing a lot: Cabana and Yanu. I just think it's comedy in the perfect way for wrestling. Well,
1: I I think putting that um, Umino Tanahashi match in your honorable mentions probably like dark horses that are are not top three necessarily, but maybe surprise matches. That certainly was one. And I I said it two episodes ago, I was wildly entertained by the uh, Nakanishi and Sleepy, I mean Yoshihashi match.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love that match too.
1: (laughs) That was, you know, and part of that was callous was so funny on the commentary, but that was an entertaining uh, match for sure as well. So plenty of uh, excitement in the New Japan Cup and now New Japan Wrestling is basically off of uh, their schedule until they come to MSG and we will talk much more about that next week because... We're obviously very excited that we're going to MSG for that show.
2: I can't wait. It'll be my first time in New York, my first time at MSG, obviously, and oh my God, I get to see my favorite people in MSG, such a historic place. It's going to be insane.
1: Yeah, it's going to be incredible. I can't wait. Uh, it's going to be so much fun to just be in Madison Square Garden to see big time wrestling in front of a full house and uh, and it not be WWE, which is the surprising part of, of the whole equation that... That Madison Square Garden is going to have such a big wrestling event that's not WWE. But speaking of WWE, let's uh, change directions and talk a little bit about WWE. Not a ton to talk about this week, but I think the biggest piece of news came from SmackDown, where all of a sudden, Charlotte and Oscar were going for the SmackDown women's title, and Charlotte wins this. What were your thoughts uh, when you saw that?
2: Well, at first, I was pretty upset because Oscar really... Doesn't look good here, and she's not being booked well, and she's not really seeming like a priority in WWE as a whole. But what made me change my mind a little bit is your reasoning. So tell people what you explained to me yeah. that kind of changed my mind. Well,
1: first of all, I completely agree with you. Uh, we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks that Oscar is kind of getting lost, and this makes her even more lost, right? What is, is she even going to be on the WrestleMania show? Will she be in? The women's battle royal, probably, but I think this is actually better from a booking perspective—not for Oscar, but for the booking perspective—in not having a, a WrestleMania match where Oscar is going against, you know, Mandy Rose again or somebody like that, where nobody's going to be excited about that. Especially when you've got this headline women's match, and now you've got Charlotte as a champion, Ronda Rousey as a champion, and Becky Lynch. And now, of course, the news this week, no surprise to any of us, that it is going to be the end of the show, the main event, which obviously is huge news. And I guess we ought to talk a little bit about the significance of that as well.
2: So, you've got great reasonings why it makes sense for the booking. And, you know, Asuka, I'm still upset for her and about her. But, yeah, it makes the main event really exciting because does this mean that it's going to be a unification match, which would be great because the women's division isn't very large. And so if you have one women's champion who kind of floats between the brands, just like the women's tag champs are doing, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it would kind of take away a lot of repetitiveness. So to me, I'm all for it if they do wind up having it be some kind of unification. As far as it being the main event... That's a huge deal. That's really incredible, and I'm very happy to see it. But at the same time, I would have been just as happy with Kofi being the main event. So I think it's historic... I think either main event would have been kind of historic because Kobe's such an underdog and such a great person. I think people would have been really happy if he closed out the show. But the women getting there just do, finally, I think kind of overrides that by a tiny bit. And I'm really happy to see it because it's been a long time in coming. And I'm surprised it's actually happening, finally. Also, Joan Jett's going to play live.
1: Yeah, pretty awesome. We this. saw
2: Joan Jett live before. Yep, yeah, yeah, So this gold. will be our second time. Cold Nugget
1: in Lake Charles. Uh, look... I think the women's match being the main event I think makes a lot of sense because as convoluted as some of the storytelling has been, and we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show, they have been building all of this to this point for months. This has been you know, the biggest build, even more so than Seth and, and Brock, which would be second, I guess. So you know, I think they've been building to this for so long that it makes sense that it's the main event. And I am so happy about it because I was asked, I was on uh, ESPN Radio New Orleans this week, and I was asked about the significance of it. And to come from where we were in the attitude era, where the women's wrestlers were basically reduced to pillow fights and pudding matches and all these goofy things, to, you know, Lita and Trish. Getting to the point where they actually got the main event Raw, which was a big deal at the time. To get to this point of headlining WrestleMania, it's quite a, a, pardon the pun, evolution.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and talk about an evolution, something similar. I mean, it wasn't putting matches, but back my first Mania and my first wrestling Mm -hmm. event back at WrestleMania 30, I vividly recall after Undertaker loses to Brock Lesnar... The match that followed was the at the time divas match you know they were called divas then everyone got up everyone including me and my friend we went to the concession stand and everyone was there talking about how upset they were about undertaker but basically the divas match was a bathroom break and you know they termed that for a while they were saying like oh the divas match bathroom break time that was kind of like a well-known saying about divas matches so that has changed and this is just like what five years later that's crazy The rebranding, the amount of talent that has come up, especially from NXT, to kind of change the face of women's wrestling in WWE, and I love that. And people who had been there for a long time, you know, like Natty, finally getting to shine, finally getting the respect she deserves. Just people, not just the NXT people, just people shining all around. Just the division's really well-rounded, and even NXT has a really great women's division. So both WWE, NXT, great women on the roster, really... A women's roster between both at second to none.
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously earlier this week it was also announced that uh, it will be a fatal four-way for the women's tag team titles as Beth Phoenix and Natty will go against Nia and Tamina versus the Iconics versus Bailey and the Boss. So uh, the women are certainly getting a chance to shine again. feel bad for Oscar, but I get get it from a booking perspective. Who I feel good for is Kofi Kingston, We knew it was going to happen. Again, convoluted storytelling, even down to this week where the New Day had to win a a tag team gauntlet match to get Kofi into the match. But I think you saw it. I know a lot of it's staged, but I think a lot of those wrestlers backstage that were hanging out with Kofi were legitimately happy for Kofi. Uh, Everybody is happy for Kofi, it seems like. Even the Usos, remember in the middle of the gauntlet match, what they said.
2: I... Loved that Usos bit. I'm Wait, not.
1: Newsflash: She liked something from the Usos on the mic.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say <laughs> that I'm not a fan of the Usos, but I love that they forfeit the match. I love that they didn't lay down. It just felt more in character for them to forfeit. um And the explanation obviously made sense. They said, "We respect Kofi. We respect you guys. We already, you know, went to war together. We forfeit the match. You know, we want Kofi to have this." So I think that's so cool. That I think it's real, though the way they feel, and they're using that in storyline, but I think everyone thinks that Kofi deserves this, and so it's kind of special to see it play out in real life, and that's the only reason I said that it could be worthy of the main event, other than the women, just because it's such a special storyline for somebody who seems so special behind the scenes. Uh, Otherwise, nothing could rival the women's main event. I feel like it's such a huge deal, and it is, regardless, but I just think that's the only reason the Kofi match is even in the same hemisphere. Or Stratosphere.
1: Who gets the bigger roar, Becky Lynch or Kofi Kingston?
2: Kofi Kingston, I think, because I think Becky's a little cooled down. I think if Kofi wins at Mania, it could be one of the greatest things we ever see. Yeah. Ever.
1: I think it's going to rival when Daniel Bryan won it at WrestleMania 30, which, you know, the Superdome went insane when he won it. I think MetLife Stadium is going to—I even said it on on the radio this week. If Kofi wins, MetLife Stadium is going to explode in applause.
2: I think it could be— a crazier reaction than the Daniel Bryan one because people knew Daniel Bryan would have a hard climb and that he could possibly not be champion, but he had a better chance of being champion than somebody like Kofi Kingston. Not that Kofi's not a good wrestler, but his place on the card, being involved with tag team wrestling for so long, you wouldn't think that Kofi would ever get his opportunity. Now the opportunity has magically fallen into place, and not just fallen into place, but fallen into place organically, which is so rare. Really, think about how this has played out. Mm-hmm. Really, we didn't know that this would happen. No. This wasn't in the cards. No, he
1: wasn't even supposed to be in the Elimination Chamber match. It was supposed to be Mustafa Ali. Right. So that goes to show how you. there's no way WWE four months ago was thinking that Kofi Kingston was going to be in their championship match at WrestleMania. There's no chance.
2: I know. And exactly. <laughs> That's why I think the roar could be bigger. Because it's one, organic, and two, unexpected as heck.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's gonna be, it's gonna be awesome. And I think something else that could be awesome at WrestleMania, if it comes to fruition, uh, Demon Finn Balor coming to the ring. Uh, we know he's gonna be at WrestleMania after he had to go through the ridiculousness of a handicap match.
2: Ridiculous.
1: Why not just have a number one contenders match? Why do, Why do we have to have Finn Balor go against two guys?
2: <laughs> it is kind of absurd. I mean, I'm really tired of seeing him go against the same people over and over again. But again, the only saving grace could be if he comes out as the demon, which I don't think we've seen at Mania yet.
1: No. Or at I least don't. not
2: in person. No, and I. I, no,
1: definitely not in person. Or not know. ever, maybe. Yeah.
2: So I can't wait to see that possibly happen. Uh, something bad, though, that happened this week on WWE television. Samoa Joe losing to Angle. I understand what they're trying to do with Angle, but I don't believe, you know, putting a guy who's about to retire over when you're hurting the guy who's going to remain with the company after that guy leaves. So to me, it makes no sense for your current roster to be losing to the guy who's leaving the company. And I am a huge fan of Angle. He's my favorite wrestler. So I don't have anything against Kurt Angle. I just have something against he's leaving and these guys are going to be the ones who carry the company forward and yet they look weakened because of this. Like they can't stand up. It's again, glorifying the attitude era, glorifying (laughs) the uh, ruthless aggression era age over your current talent right. which is ridiculous they've got to stop doing that invest in the talent you have now that'll be the talent you have to depend on 10 years from now when you're looking for legends they won't be legends if you don't build them up to be that <laughs> right you
1: know and look in the grand scheme of things it doesn't matter but it it does it, it really does make no sense and uh you know I, I look Samoa Joe and Kurt Angle have had such great matches in the past in, in TNA, TNA yeah you know so I get that you know Samoa Joe is showing respect to Kurt Angle. He even he even made some joking line uh, as he came down the walkways. You know the the farewell to Kurt Angle. I forgot my bouquet of roses for you, or, yeah. or my bouquet of flowers. But you're right. It it just doesn't make sense.
2: It doesn't make sense, and I really expected Joe's booking as champion to be kind of like he was going to plow through everybody. I thought he would be a dominant champion, and it hasn't really been booked that way, especially with this Angle match. Well. Which really was unnecessary.
1: Well, and on top of it, you know, look, Kurt Angle is one of my favorites, too. He looked terrible in the ring. He, I mean, and to have Samoa Joe lose to a, a bad Kurt Angle, and then Kurt Angle trying to hit the Angle Slam on Orton on SmackDown on Tuesday was painful to watch. So it's I, sad. I'm hoping somehow he can pull together and have some sort of a decent match at WrestleMania so he has a good send-off. But the two matches he had this week were... Kind of hard to watch, and I hate to say that.
2: I hate to hear that, too, because he's one of my favorites, and it makes me sad that, you know, he's gotten that bad. Not bad as he can't wrestle, but his body. Yeah,
1: his body just can't handle it. (laughs) Yeah, tore
2: up, torn down as well. (laughs) Yeah. So hopefully we could see something better, though, and have him be built up and have a feel-good moment at Mania. But hopefully not at the expense of everybody on the main (laughs) roster. (laughs) I don't know.
1: Right. Uh, Finally, I just wanted to hit on Triple H's promo on Raw, because he had some really really awesome comments that I I wrote down after I wanted to get to. Uh, He pulled back the curtain on something that if you don't go to a WWE Raw or SmackDown in person, you don't know that this happens. But he uh, came back from the commercial break and he goes, Wow, that was awesome of you guys to continue that standing ovation all through the commercial break. If you only have seen Raw and SmackDown on TV, you don't know that as soon as they go to a commercial – the person's music goes away and they show some video package in the arena. And then when they come back from commercial break, the person's music cranks back up. So it's not going on for two and a half minutes. Yeah. There's other stuff going on. So I thought that was just kind of a, a funny nod by Triple H pulling back out the curtain on uh, kind of what goes on back st- or behind the scenes. Uh, also, I liked that uh, Triple H uh, b- Batista had said, you know, I made you in Evolution. And Triple H said, before you joined Evolution, you were the deacon.
2: (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Aw. That is a good line. I love that.
1: He also said uh, he brought up the Spice Girls. You know, He he made fun of that, which we made fun of last week. And then uh, with the stipulation that it's supposed to be the end of Triple H's career, uh, if he loses to Batista, Triple H said... If I can't beat a self-deluded douchebag like you, I have no career anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is pretty good. So, Tell me what you want. (laughs) I want to move on from talking WWE. Uh, So let's wrap up and throw to break.
1: Yep, let's let's move forward. And when we come back, we have an extended interview with Hollywood producer and wrestling fan Mark Blutman. We'll talk about his days working on Boy Meets World and so much more when we come back. St. Arnold Brewing Company, located in Houston, is Texas' oldest craft brewery. Their goal is to brew world-class beers and deliver them to their customers as fresh as possible, making them the best beers in Texas and Louisiana. Their customers are beer lovers, people that appreciate great, full-flavored beers. So whether you're enjoying an art car IPA or a smooth-drinking lawnmower, look for St. Arnold beers throughout Louisiana and Texas.
2: Our Two-Faced Wrestling Talk logo was inspired by Two-Face, the Batman animated series character, and his coin. The logo was designed by the talented and creative artist Eric Hudson. Eric creates wrestling-themed pieces as well as other pop culture art. He is also currently working on a Roddy Piper comic book. You can follow him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DreadedDinosaur. You can also support his work by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash dreaded dinosaur. Please check out his work.
0: And now back to Two-Face Wrestling Talk.
2: So this week I'm so excited to play you guys one part of my Mark Blutman interview. I had a blast talking with him. He has had such an interesting life and wrestling has intersected in different parts of his life so many different ways it's crazy i even said like wow you found a way to interject wrestling into your life no matter what you ended mm-hmm. up doing at the time and he was like yeah because i really have a passion for it and he actually revealed to me that he kind of wants to get into working with wrestling now he kind of wants to move into that direction plus we talked a lot about boy Meets world including him bringing vader onto to world as a guest star and i'm wearing my vader shirt yeah especially in honor of us talking Big Van Vader, who I love. So, hope you enjoy part one of my Mark Blutman interview. So, Mark, I'm so excited to be joined by you. Bull Meets World means so much to so many people. It really has a special place in a lot of people's hearts, because not only is it a great show, but... A lot of people have nostalgia for that time in TV, and really, I think personally that '90s television is some of the best television ever made. Just very creative, very out of the box, revolutionary, and *Boomer's World* really mixed comedy, but it also had a lot of heartfelt, emotional moments, and that's one of my favorite things about the show. But even more than *Boomer's World*, we're going to talk wrestling, because. You are a lifelong wrestling fan, and also you kind of used that love in Boy Meets World and brought Vader on. So tell us, how did you become, first off, a fan of wrestling?
3: Uh, well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me, Kelsey. It's a pleasure to do your uh, your podcast. I'm a, a big fan of what you and Paul do, and I, I listen every week, and uh, I'm excited to uh, share some time with uh, you and your listeners well, me, so as excited. a wrestling fan, or as the people in the biz like to call me, a Mark, literally, is my <laughs> name, and I'm a wrestling Mark. I uh, started off as a kid, you know, I, I, like most people, uh, I was uh, just, you know, about six, seven years old, and uh, my grandfather took me to uh, uh, matches in Montreal, and I just was hooked from that moment on. And I remember even now, you know, when my mother pulls out photo albums. There's pictures of me as a six, seven year old wearing like, you know, speedo, <laughs> speedo bathing suit and a matching tank top and posing in front of the mirror like my hands, like formed like a claw because Baron Von Raschke, who was one of the guys I loved as a kid, did the claw. <laughs> and I was six years old and I wanted to be the Baron. And so from from that young age, I was like, I was hooked, man, and watched it every Saturday morning. And uh Probably in my head wanted to be a professional wrestler, and then I was reminded I was short and Jewish and not very strong, so it probably wasn't going to (laughs) happen.
2: Well, you did end up working in entertainment in some way. But let's talk about your favorite live wrestling memories. Because you told me you were able to see Andre the Giant wrestle live. So I'm sure that was really, really impressive and fun. But any other wrestling memories that you got to see in person that sticks out to you? Well,
3: it, sure. Let me let me talk about the Giant, you know, first. I saw him live twice. Uh, in 1972... I was a young kid, and in Montreal at the famous Forum, the old Montreal Forum, I saw what was billed as match of the century between Andre the Giant and Don Leo Jonathan, who was this big Mormon guy from Salt Lake City, Utah, with big sideburns. And he was a very, very agile big man. And the great thing about seeing Andre back then is, The guy could bump, and the guy could sell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, all the people that really know Andre the Giant, they just know him as a guy who would, you know, maybe come in and squash somebody in four minutes. Right. Or, you know, just bounce around the ropes. But back then, he would take drop kicks and then fly over the top rope and roll to the ground. Uh, The guy could bump, and people don't know that. But, you know, I suggest Googling that because – you know, there are matches out there that just blow you away when, you know, when he was a younger man.
2: In that HBO documentary, if you saw it about Andre the Giant, they had this great rare footage of him actually, I think it was in France, where he was training. He was very young, very fit, tall and skinny, and he was bumping and very athletic.
3: It was amazing. I mean, you know, he was still the four. He was probably about seven one, somewhere around there. But, you know, when he was younger, I mean, he could definitely, definitely bump and sell. And especially if he liked you. I mean, if he was working with somebody he liked, he would definitely sell. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't, and he would be stiff. Yeah. And then the other guy, the other match, which was, again, looking back on, on this, it's like I, I can't believe how blessed as a fan I was to see this. I saw him at, at Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens um, against the, uh, the original Sheik out of Detroit. Wow. And, and that was unbelievable. And that was, uh, that was, if I remember correctly, that's when the Sheik used to pull the pencil out. And uh, he, uh, he bladed uh, Andre, and there was a lot of shoes, lot of man. It, and the match lasted about six, seven minutes, but it was wild. And, and you know, it's interesting too, I also, talking about the Sheik, I have another great memory of seeing the Sheik live in Montreal. Uh, and he worked with Abdullah the Butcher in a small arena. It was about a three thousand seat arena called the Pulse Survey Arena. And I was maybe sixteen, seventeen years old. And these guys just bladed each other. You know, I I'm mean, sure was there was blood right, everywhere right from the opening bell. And then I remember this because I was so scared. And this is when I, you know, I was still young enough where. I was starting to think that, yeah, you know, this stuff is, is obviously a work, but there were elements that went on that made you go, man, these guys are shooting. And the Butcher, at the end of the match, it was like a double disqualification, and there was blood everywhere, and me and a buddy were sitting around ringside, and he just went berserk, and he started chasing a bunch of us through the aisles. Back behind the curtain, we just ran, and he was like, he just, I mean, kayfabe the whole time and did not leave us alone. He chased us all around the arena, about 10, 15 fans.
2: So what kind of gave you the first hint that it was scripted? Because, you know, I became a fan later in life, but you were a fan as a kid, and you went to all these extreme matches. Like you said, you were scared. There was blood all over the place. I can only imagine how how wild that must have been when you were a kid seeing this firsthand but what was the first indications that you thought well maybe this is scripted and maybe this isn't completely you know legit
3: yeah you know i think it had to do with as i was a little older and you start watching on tv and you know they show a replay and you go wait a minute he didn't hit him right and the guy would still sell the heck out of something and you're going He missed. He missed. So you start seeing a lot of that, and then you just, you know, you get it. But by that time, you're hooked, and you have a choice to make. You walk away, and you find something else, or you just continue to ride that roller coaster. Because at the end of the day, uh, and, you know, I, I think anybody would agree, all professional wrestling is is storytelling. Exactly. That's it. And so... You know, when we go to the movies, you know, we know that's work. We know there was no real Princess Bride. It was created by somebody. It was just fabulous, fabulous storytelling and uh, wonderful characters. And they have about two hours to get the audience, you know, hooked and to be happy. And uh, I looked at wrestling like that. It was just, you know, another form of storytelling.
2: Definitely, I believe, you know, it's an art form, and it's just, it's another way of expressing whatever form of art you want to show the audience. Any kind of wrestling can be that. Comedy wrestling, even high-flying wrestling, mat wrestling, it's all different styles of art. And, you know, let's talk about your specific style of art, because you you do a different type of art. You're involved in television, and um, talk about how you actually got involved with Boom World.
3: Well, um, you know, I first... uh I came out to L.A. Uh, in the early 80s, and I was a stand-up comic and an actor, and um, we can actually, you know, if you want, we can dive into that right now, and which will lead us to the Play Meets World thing. Sure. Um, yeah, so uh, I, for years, for about, as a frustrated, you know, wrestling fan who wanted to be a wrestler as a kid, I kind of stumbled upon a, a way to kind of feel like I was a, like, feel like I was actually a wrestler. and I was doing stand-up comedy in Canada in the late 70s, uh, early 80s and I just you know I was a regular stand-up comic. I went on as myself. and uh, I would talk a little bit about wrestling in my act, but you know uh, not too much. And then uh, me and a buddy were doing a, uh, hosting a Saturday night show in Montreal, a place called the John Bull Pub. And there was a big, you know, snowstorm. So four or five of the comics that were scheduled to work couldn't make it. I was there, my friend was there, and one other comic. But we had to fill a couple of hours. And so I said to my buddy, you know what? I'm going to try and make it home, delay the show. I have an idea. And I drove home, it was about 15 minutes away. It was snowing, but I just Mm -hmm. was determined to do this. And I knew I was going to basically come on stage as this character called the Crusher Comic. All I had was a name, the Crusher Comic, and I had a ski mask at the time Mm -hmm. at home and a bathrobe, and that was it. So I got the bathrobe and the ski mask. I went back to the club. I went on first as myself. I did about a half hour. And then after, my buddy went on, another guy went on. Then I went backstage, put on the ski mask and and the bathrobe, And I said to my friend, just introduce me as an ex-wrestler turned comedian, the Crusher comic. And I had not written any act at all. And there was about 25 people in the audience. My buddy goes out. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest for you. He's an ex-professional wrestler. Turned comedian, please welcome the Crusher comic. And I came out, and I just, listen, anybody knows, any wrestling fan knows, to be a good heel, you got to know basically two things. You got to know how to yell, shut up, (laughs) is one thing. And you got to know how to say, let me tell you something, brother. (laughs) So between those two things, I just started working the crowd. I go up to somebody and say, how you doing? What's your name? Where you from? What do you do for a living? And as soon as they started talking, I would go, shut up, shut up. <laughs> then I picked somebody up from the audience, and I gave them an airplane spin. Just grabbed somebody from the <laughs> audience, put them on my shoulders, spun them, oh my threw them down on the stage, and then gave them an elbow drop.
2: That's amazing.
3: People are going nuts. So now I'm getting caught up in the adrenaline, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, a, you know, uh, 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 like a wrestler. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling them what happened. I used to be a professional wrestler. and One day they said to me, Crusher, you can't fight the midgets anymore. Mm-hmm. And I need some of the best, including the great midget champion, Dust Dwarf. And I'm just making all this stuff up. Now, of course, they're called little people, I know. But back then, I could be <laughs> somewhat politically incorrect. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just spewing stuff and insulting them. And... They're going nuts. And about 20 minutes goes by, and I finally say goodnight, and they gave me a standing ovation. Wow. <laughs> and I continued to yell at them as I was leaving. They're clapping, going, this was awesome. I'm going, you don't know anything. <laughs> You're a bunch <of> pencil. <laughs> Jeez, You know nothing. And I just threw a ski mask in a bathrobe. And I went, okay. At the time, stand-up <laughs> comedy was huge.
2: Yeah, I know. I mean, so many names in the late 70s and 80s.
3: Yeah, it was late 70s, early 80s, and I knew I needed, you know, something to delineate myself from all the other acts. And so I said, okay, I'm going to put money into this act, and I uh, invested—I found a a seamstress in Montreal— who made these beautiful uh, velour robes for me, kind of like Ric Flair robes with sparkles and dollar signs all over them. Wow. And I had, uh, yeah, and I had custom-made masks made that were patterned after the uh, destroyer's mask. Uh, Dick Byer, who actually recently passed away.
2: I-, I saw your Instagram post saying that your persona was somewhat inspired by him.
3: A lot of it was, yeah, absolutely. And so I just built the act, a lot of audience participation. And before I knew it, I was headlining comedy clubs all over the states between 80 and 87. I'd go on the road. And I was the only comedian that didn't have Johnny Carson or David Letterman exposure, but can still regularly sell out the clubs.
2: That's amazing. I mean, when I think yeah, about comedy in the late 80s, And you being so successful, that's incredible, because you think about the names out there during that time, like, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld.
3: Seinfeld and Sam Kinison and, you know, uh, Bob Saget and uh, Eddie Murphy and Gilbert Gottfried and Richard Lewis, and it was just, you know, comedy was huge. Yeah. Unfortunately, wrestling was huge, so to marry the two. And it was a blast, you know. And I also, so under the rope, because the rope, I still came out. I'd come out to Eye of the Tiger.
2: Oh my God, that's and awesome! I s-
3: still did the airplane spin every show. It got to the point where I'd go to a city that I had been before, and the manager would come backstage, and you know, say, "Come here," and I'd look out the doorway to the club, and they'd go. Okay, that person there requested that you airplane spin their husband. That person over there requested that you airplane spin their brother. i get requests to airplane spin these people in the audience. And, and I would do it. And uh, under my robe, I had tights. I had all these really elaborate tights, very colorful, um, you know, long tights and uh, uh, singlets. And then I wore a tuxedo shirt and a bow tie. And uh, I entertained for an hour. Wow. And all of a sudden, yeah, it was amazing, Kelsey. All, and most of my act was just audience participation. I mean, like, I had this big finish, with at the end of my act, I'd say, you know, a lot of people come up to me and they say, Crusher, tell us about wrestling. Is it real? Is it fake? We want to know the truth. And I said, there's only one way. I'm not going to tell you either way, but I'm going to show you. I said, I need a volunteer from the audience. And some guy would come up. And uh, (laughs) me and him are standing on stage. And I remember, this is a comedy club. And all of a sudden, I'd open my trunk and I'd pull out the chain, the two collars, and I would attach myself to the other guy. They have no idea what's going on. It's completely ad lib. And I said, we're going to do it. We're going to settle it with an old-fashioned chain match. (laughs) And then... We would just look at each other, and then I'd whisper so the audience can't hear. I said, take, you know, take, take, slap me, take a shot at me. And the guy would slap me, and I'd sell and roll around. Then I'd get up, and against the wall behind me, under a, uh, a cloth was a table, and I would remove the cloth, and I'd bring out the old Rock'em Sockam Robots. Oh, my God. So we would settle it with Rock'em Sock'em <laughs> Robots. Music was playing. And my little robot, my little robot had a little mask on just like mine. <laughs> and my then I had it rigged with a pump that in the middle of the fight, my robot would start bleeding. Blood would fly everywhere. And then, this is all true. And then at the end, I knock the guy's block up, and I say, you never had a chance. <laughs> and I pulled out crazy glue and say, my guy's block was blew down with crazy glue. <laughs> that is incredible. And... They went nuts. They went nuts. So now I find myself on the cover twice of Wrestling World Magazine. Wow. I mean, you can, yeah, I'm like, one of the covers, I'm like right under the Road Warriors. Road Warriors, Crusher Comic, Barry Windham we're all listed on the cover.
2: So how long did you so do I, that act for?
3: Um, I did Crusher Comic from about 79, 80 uh, till about 90.
2: Wow, that's that's a long time. And
3: uh, I even did a show, I don't know if you, you know, uh, remember, but way back, Vince had a show called Tuesday Night Titans.
2: Yes, I do remember.
3: Crush I guessed it on that. Really? Really.
2: I'll have to go, is that on the network? Because I'd love to go and see it if it is.
3: Yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm, it may be on uh, YouTube somewhere. But, so I'm getting all this heat, you know uh in the wrestling world so i'm selling out all the clubs and um you know just, i'd go into a city kelsey was a blast they, the comedy club would you know sometimes run win a date with the comedian contest if he was single whatever <laughs> and i'd go in and go well we're not going to do that they go no no we want to do that i go well I, i'm not going to be seen without my mask right so we would do Renegade, the Crusher comic, and I'd go out to a fancy restaurant with the girl who won, sitting in this fancy steakhouse in regular clothes and a mask.
2: Fabe was not dead for you in your Crusher Kayfabe comic persona. in comedy. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. <laughs> and
3: uh, so, yeah, it was great. I did a couple of the big Just for last comedy festivals in Montreal, which is my hometown, so that was great. Uh, selling up venues like Club Soda. And then... Um, Here's where we make the transition. And this will finally, after a long-winded explanation of my stand-up persona, Pressure Comic, but this is how I got to Boy Meets World. So I'm in Pittsburgh, and I'm playing a place called The Funny Bone, a great comedy club. Uh, Dennis Miller started there, Mario Joyner. Um, I think it may be still around. And it was a horrible snowstorm. And I'm like, you're going to cancel the show, right? Nobody's going to be able to get there. And the club owner says, no, no. <laughs> Saturday night, two shows. We're doing it, two shows. I go, well, you're going to pick me up like you normally do? He says about two miles away. And he goes, no, man, we can't drive. It's horrible. you gotta, got to get here on your own. So I'm in Pittsburgh. It's snowing. <laughs> and I'm walking. And That's horrible. I had just washed my gear in the condo where they put me up so i had my mask it's ice and snowing so i put my mask on like it's a ski mask <laughs> and i'm walking the two miles to the comedy club well the first people to pull over after they see me i'm hoping oh i'm gonna get a ride and they pull over and it's cops <laughs> because they see a guy oh, no. <laughs> the only guy in the street has a mask
2: in, in the, so in the this, big snow yeah. oh my gosh
3: So I have to explain to them, no, I'm the comedian. I'm working at uh, the Improv. I'm Crusher Comic. And they just look at me like I'm from Mars and they they go away. But I'm upset. I'm so upset. And I finally, about an hour later, I get to the club. And uh, there's maybe seven people there because although it's a Saturday night and you normally sell out, there was a horrible snowstorm. They should have canceled the show. And I get on stage and I do my thing. And I'm not happy. I just walked two miles in a blizzard, wearing a mask, Stop by Pops. I go through my act, and I get to the end, and I call somebody up. We attach each other to the chains, and we, you know, squared off, looking at each other's eyes. And I say, all right. I whisper, take a shot. It just slap me. And what this guy does, and I didn't know, he was drunk as drunk as could be, and he yanked on the chain, pulled me towards him, and punched me in the nose.
2: No way. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible.
3: Yeah. So I was like, I mean, again, let me remind you, as I said earlier, not real big, not real strong, just I'm just, um, your average little Jewish man. And I just went down, and I didn't want to get up again, but I had to finish the show, and security, you know, the bouncers from the club came, grabbed him, took him out, and as he's being carried out, he goes, that comic thinks he's so badass, Mr. X-Wrestler, he thinks he's all that. I kicked him, look at him, he's down, I punched him in the face, he's down. And I'm lying there, and... uh I get back to the dressing room and I go, I'm done. I want a wife. I want kids. This is what I want in life. And somehow touring the States, dressed as a wrestler, is, you know, being in Pittsburgh and Des Moines and Salt Lake City and uh, Columbia, Missouri and all these towns where I'd have to go every month. And it was great at the time. When I was a young single guy, they'd pay your airfare, put you up at a hotel or a condo and, pay good cash money and we'd sell out and I'd get a piece of the door but I didn't want to keep doing that. Right. I wanted stability. I wanted family and at the time I was also acting in L.A. So, I had done a couple of movies. I was in a movie called Meatballs 3 uh, with Patrick Dempsey. Um, I was on a, a show called Hill Street Blues. I did the soap opera All My Children. I, you know, started booking some acting work but I knew The comedy thing, doing Crusher Comics for the rest of my life was not going to bring me what I wanted, which was stability, a wife and kids. And so um, I said, I'm going to be a writer. I just said, hey, I had a good imagination. I write half my act on the spot. You know, a lot of my act is improv. And so I started writing some scripts. And um, I uh, ended up my first job. I got hired, a friend of mine. I was an executive at a studio here in L.A. and uh, Sony TriStar. And uh, there was a showrunner at the time named uh, Danny Jacobson who had two new shows that he created. One was called Mad About You with Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt. Oh, yeah. And the other show was a show called Good Advice with Shelley Long, who was just coming off of Cheers and Treat Williams. And Danny Jacobson, (laughs) I went in, I met him and said, so "I read your script that you wrote. It's fantastic. Here's." He handed me two VHS tapes. Go Google that, listeners, if you don't know what a VHS tape is. <laughs> I
2: have plenty of them. That's what,
3: <laughs> that's what we had back then. And he says, "Go watch these, and you could be on. I will staff you on any show you want, either of the two you choose." Wow. So I watched the two shows, and needless to say, I chose the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> Mad so About you, you, you ran about 11 years. Good Advice ran about two years.
2: So, yeah, you didn't but You didn't pick Mad About You then.
3: I did not pick That's Mad About That's the one about I was I more thought, familiar with. Uh, you know, this whiny guy with this really hot wife, Helen Hans, who's going to believe that? No one's going to believe that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that comes under the heading, uh, Bad Decisions. But I wouldn't do anything different because had I been on Mad About You, I would not have been available for my next job, which turned out to be Boy Meets World. And so um, they had done one season, which I was not on, and uh, uh, Corey was uh, in middle school. And the show, you know, it was cute, and it was uh, it was pretty soft, I thought. It was a little soft. Yeah. And my agents called me and they said, uh, Michael Jacobs, the creator, wants to meet you. So I said, great. And we sat down, and we said, uh, we do want to edge the show up a little bit. We, uh, we want to, we're we we going to jump the kids to junior high, and we want to have edgier stories, and we want to really mine the Corey-Capanga relationship. Would you be interested in joining the show? And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> and uh, that show, Kelsey, was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it was um, – you know, one of the things you said at the beginning of uh, of the interview during the intro, you talked about the impact Boy Meets World had on people. Right. How, how iconic. There's a nostalgia for it, all that. We didn't know that while we were doing the show.
2: Right.
3: Because there was no there was no social media. So we knew we were doing a successful show. We knew by the ratings. You know, we were on Friday nights and. Now between 16 and 20 million people would tune in every Friday to see us. But we didn't get that instant feedback that you, nowadays, you put a show out, you know before the show's over whether it's good or it sucks. Yeah, because people, people are, are talking you
2: know. or not talking, exactly.
3: So back then, we didn't know. We just knew we were doing a good show and we had a good, loyal fan base. It was all the years later when Disney asked Michael to do a sequel to create Girl Meets World, that all the Boy Meets World fans came out. It was an opportunity for them to let us know, hey man, yeah, you know, because we were all reachable on social media. Right. So I would get all these, you know, direct messages or texts, you know, tweets, whatever. Hey man, that episode where um, Sean was hiding the girl because she was getting beaten by her father until he thought they were hooking up, didn't know the story. And Corey and Sean had to protect the girl from uh, her father. Right. They didn't know if they should go to the police or not. Well, you really helped me because I was in an abusive home and my father hit me. Wow. And if it wasn't for your show, I don't know if I would have survived. And you start hearing these things and you're just blown away and you go, oh my gosh, there are so many writers out there that are writing good quality TV, but were really affecting young people. Right. And one of the things that uh, Michael taught me early on in my career is he said, anybody can make an audience laugh. And there's nothing wrong with that. But not anybody can make an audience feel. And when you make your audience feel, they will come back week after week after week. Whether they know why or not, it will come back because they're feeling something. And if the material is touching them and it's compelling, that's how you build an audience. And that's what we did.
2: That's really an incredible line of events that happened to you. I mean, I know at the time you felt like it was a huge mistake not to pick Mad About You. But as you said, it worked I... out for the best because, yes, Mad About You, I've heard of it, and it's popular, and it was a great show. But the staying power and... More so, the emotional impact that Boy Meets World had is just, to me, massive. And to a lot of people, like one of our listeners at Smart to Death, he said, you know, Mark, what is it like to know that you produced a TV show that not only became adored by so many people, especially 90s kids, but a show that took a cast of kids into their early adult years?
3: Um, well... You know, I, I, again, Michael Jacobs created it, and I was fortunate enough to become a writer, executive producer on it. I ran the show for a couple of years, so I had a lot of responsibility. But the answer to that is it's overwhelming because to this day, all these years later, 20 years later from when we went off the air, when somebody, you know, meets me, hey, what do you do? What have you done? When they hear that I did Boy Meets World, you could see – Oh, look, just come over their face. And I'm not equating it to we're not rock stars. I don't think we're rock stars at all. But to these people who are now in their mid-30s or 40s or late-20s or whatever, to be able to talk to me about how much the episodes both made them laugh and made them cry, it's overwhelming to me, and that's why... When we did the sequel, and I did, you know, a bunch of other stuff in between, and I worked with the Olsen twins, and, you know, I did a show with uh, Jaleel White Urkel when he was all grown up. But to be able to go back, and when we did Girl Meets World, you know, uh, four years ago, I guess, it premiered somewhere around there. Right. And to sit on stage, the first run through rehearsal, and watch Ben and Danielle reprising the roles of Corey and Topanga. All these years later, I turned to to Michael and another couple of writers that were also on Boy, Jeff, um, and Alan, Matt Nelson, and I just said, we're blessed, man. We are so blessed. Because, I mean, we were the first kind of reboot show, now there's more, but at the time, you know, we were one of the first, and to to be able to fast forward 20-some odd years later, and there's Ben and Danielle, who I knew, when they were 11, 12 years old, and I wrote shows for them when they were that age, and now they're the parents of the show, and we're writing again for them. It's overwhelming, and, uh, you know, I, I can't uh, thank fate enough, and I do believe in in a higher power, and I do believe that everything happens for a reason. And when I look back on my career, there's nothing I would change. That includes being the wrestler and getting beat up in Pittsburgh.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, not every show can make people feel. And an episode that really jumps out to me is cult fiction. I mean, seeing Sean in the room with Mr. Turner and seeing him laying in the hospital bed and Sean just is so affected. I think it's a perfect example of how you guys really connected with the audience and made the audience feel something powerful right. that a lot of, I mean, I guess in a way you could call Boy Meets World kids TV, but it was more than kids TV. It was, it was, To me, it was TV with kids as stars in it, but it wasn't just kids TV because anybody could relate to that. And it touched people. So tell me a little bit, about episodes like that
3: cult fiction i remember very well um and um you know we and this the credit here goes to michael jacobs he's uh you know he's not shy about religion and he's not shy about writing about god a lot of networks don't like you to and uh there was the speech at the end where sean talked to god while he was holding turner's hand
2: yeah
3: um it's just powerful and it just reaches kids. And when they see this cool kid, Sean, who everybody loved, because he was the cute kid with the hair that moved, <laughs> because Corey's <laughs> hair never moved, and he wore the leather jacket, and they thought, oh my gosh, that's, that's Sean, right or strong. He's the coolest, and girls had his poster all over their walls. But then to see him on camera just break down. Just break down. Yeah. It was unbelievable, and and uh, Rusty Russ, William Russ, who played the dad, remember in that episode, yeah. uh, he pushed Mr. Mac against the wall. And uh, I like how Mr. He, Feeney he, he
2: said, "You can't have Sean," and that was a powerful statement too. I just that episode really sticks out in my mind as one of my favorites right. in the series. It's a really good episode. Now, yeah.
3: Now the guy who played Mr. Mac uh, is named Jerry Levine. Uh, who was a dear friend of uh, of Michael Jacobs? Friends, uh, you know, became friends of the show, and uh, he played uh, Styles in the original Teen Wolf movie. Wow!
2: Wow!
3: Yeah, and uh, so he played did a great job playing Mr. Mac. and uh, um, you know, to do episodes like that, I mean, that's what it's all about. Again, we had plenty of funny. Right. But we also dared to make you cry and make you feel, and that's what made you come back. You know, like I said earlier, the episode where the young girl was being beaten had all the bruises up and down her arms; she was being abused by uh, by her father. Oh, I mean, who would do an episode like that in the '90s on a primetime sitcom? Right. You know, and then of course the whole emotional roller coaster of the. Uh, great a relationship and all the breakups. <laughs> we had about 23 breakups. <laughs> the audience was like, enough, are they going to break up again the season? And we're like, yeah, probably.
2: <laughs> but, you know, people don't really remember the breakups. I think what people remember the most is how they just wound up together. And people think of it exactly. as a positive role model. It's one of the things people remember most fondly about the show, I think.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, um, we live in a society with an extremely high uh, divorce rate. I, myself, am, you know, uh, divorced, although I'm still super, super tight with my ex because I value her and she values me. But the point I'm making, and it's what we did with, uh, you know, uh, calling Topanga, is you just don't quit love. Right. You don't quit love. Because guess what? We have all, like, we have best friends in our lives that we love as well. Yes. You ever knock on the door and say, hey, Shelby, I know we've been best friends for the last 15 years, but see ya. (laughs) No. Just don't do it. Right. The bond is there, so hopefully most people marry their best friend. Well, how do you walk away from that? I don't know. I just, you know. So Corey and, and Topanga, I think, was that love letter to the world of, come on, man. You're going to have obstacles. You're going to have more obstacles than you could imagine. More obstacles than a writer can actually sit down and write. (laughs) But stick it out. Stick it out.
2: Well, you know, before we get into the more fun side, like in the Vader episodes, just tell people what being a co-executive producer means, because I'm in TV, too, and producer can mean a lot of different things. So when people think producer, they they solely think of one type of thing. So can you kind of detail us your sure. your duties on the show and what your job entailed?
3: So basically the way it works in television writing is your first job, you're basically uh call the baby writer or a staff writer. It's usually your first job. That's your title. You're responsible for doing whatever the show on tells you to do. Um, Then as you work your way up, you become a story editor, then a co producer, supervising producer, co executive producer, executive producer now. So basically, it's it's with tenure, the longer you've been on a show, and the more you're proving your worth and how good you are, the more responsibility you get. So I started on uh, Boy Meets World as a story editor, uh, which is kind of just, you know, one beyond baby writer, and then um, worked my way up, and when Michael went off to do some other shows, uh, we were running the show. We were the showrunners. Now, the responsibilities at that point include making sure all the stories are broken, assigning scripts to the different writers on the show, uh, then doing the rewrites after a table read, Um, casting the episode, and we were also responsible for uh, going into editing after and cutting the show down to 22 minutes Um, and then doing what's called a a sound mix where we then go to another uh, studio and we add music with our musical team, Uh, the laugh track, all that stuff. So as an executive producer or co-executive producer, you're basically responsible for A to Z uh picking wardrobe you know in, in in your day you're sitting in the writer's room with the team writing a show and people are constantly coming in hey what do you think about this dress for uh Great. what do you think about this shirt for uh eric uh it's the episode where he's going to be out at a fancy place he's going to run into teeny he needs to dress well what is this okay yes yes no mm-hmm. and the big <laughs> here's, here's the secret kelsey and you're in TV, and as you work your way up, just here's—it's not about being right or wrong. It's just making a quick decision and making people think you know what you're doing. <laughs> I can you relate know, to that. let's face it, if somebody shows me three dresses, uh, you know, there's a good chance that you may pick a different dress and have a better idea. But I just, that one, absolutely that one. Those two, why would he even show them to me? Of course it's that one. Yeah. They're like, oh, my gosh, he really knows what he wants. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that's a trick.
2: I'll keep that in mind. I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. So let's talk about how you actually came up with the idea to bring in Vader as a guest star to play Frankie's dad. I think that's one of the most iconic guest appearances, not just by a wrestler, but by anybody on a 90s sitcom because people remember it so fondly when I was asking people before you and I had this interview I said you know what are your favorite Boy Meets World moments tons of people said Vader all the Vader episodes so talk about how that came to be
3: when I started on the show one of the first things we did in year two when they moved to high school is we introduced these fun lovable thugs led by Harley Kiner played by Danny McNulty And with his two lackeys, his, you know, his high thugs, Frankie and Joey, Frankie Zipcoats Aquino, and Joey the Rat Epstein. And uh, Frankie was a very large man named Ethan Supley, a wonderful actor. Uh, He was in Project X then he was a regular on, My Name is Earl, Uh, Mallrats. He's just a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. And so, as the series went on, people started writing in and you know talking about Harley and the Thugs. They loved those characters. So, at some point, a couple of years in, we said, "Let's meet Frankie's dad." And I said, "Well, I said he's got to be a wrestler." In the back of my head already, I knew what I was thinking. (laughs) And Michael Jacobs didn't really know anything about wrestling. He goes, "What do you mean a wrestler?" Like the college thing, roll around them. I go, no, no, no. He's a professional wrestler. The kind that goes on TV and yells, shut up. I'm the champ. I got the belt Friday night at the Olympic Auditorium. I'll see you. That kind of wrestler. Michael's like, really? And I go, yeah. And I'm telling you, you know, Michael, it's going to be, we're going to spike in ratings. Because wrestling is very big. And these guys are well known. And he goes, you have somebody in mind. And I thought for a minute, and I went, yeah, there's a guy named Vader. And uh, he's an ex-NFL football player, and now he's one of the biggest heels. What's a, a heel, heel Blotman? A heel is the villain. the villain. He goes, oh, I like that. So, And people know him as this is bad guy? I go, yeah, he's big in Japan. He's big all over the world, and he's a big WWE superstar. Actually, it was still WWF then, I think. Yeah. So he said, "How do we make this happen?" There was an executive at Disney uh, that I was friends with, named Mitch Ackerman. And uh, Mitch, I knew, was friends with a lot of the workers. He was uh, really tight with uh, with Piper, and uh, I think also with Sean Walment. He was just—he was a big mark. And he used to go backstage to all the matches, and he became friends with a lot of the guys. So I called him, and he called down to Connecticut, made a couple of calls, and then he basically set up a call for me and their head of creative, Bruce Pritchard. And so at the time, Bruce was also doing Brother Love. Brother Love was super over. So he said, what you got? I said, well, we want to bring, you know, Leon on to play this character's father, and there's going to probably be multiple episodes over a few years, and the first episode, if I remember, and to this day, it's, it's a circus, because it was the first one where he reintroduced him, uh, it was long before, it was a couple of years before we did the, the show in, uh, in Anaheim. Uh, so if I remember, Corey was fighting Joey the Rat in a wrestling match, right? And they built a ring inside the the high school gym, and he ended up being in the ring. And he was. Uh, we had Robert Goulet singing the national anthem. The late Robert Goulet. It was a famous pruner from like the fifties. Then we had Jasmine Bleef from Baywatch. Uh, she was like the ring card girl. And then we had Vader as Frankie's dad. And I remember he tagged in and he lifted uh, Eric up over yes. his head, and then Feeny jumped over the top
2: rope. <laughs> I remember it perfectly, and I rewatched it not that long ago. It's it's the episode that really sticks with me, and I don't know why, because I didn't like wrestling at the time. I was more of a bore Meets World fan than I was a wrestling fan when it originally aired, but for some reason, even though I didn't even know who this wrestler was, that episode st- stuck out to me, and the the interaction between Feeney And Vader, in the episode, is just hilarious. I mean, Vader telling him, you know, next time we're going to do a Texas death match, loser leaves town. And then Feeney's like, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So the the response from both the studio audience and, you know, the viewing audience, we did spike in numbers, and it was a home run. And, uh, you know, I, I went down and, you know, talked to Leon when he arrived, and, you know... Again, this is Boy Meets World. It's a sitcom in the 90s. The last thing you would think when you walk onto the set is there's a behemoth of a man off to the sides with rubber bands under his foot, and he's, he's doing curls with them. You know? <laughs> right. And all the kids are watching him. They're like, oh, my God. Like, to the kids who are you know, 11, 12 years old, they just can't believe what they're seeing. And then to get them in the ring and have them act with William Daniels, Mr. Feeney, William Daniels, who was on Broadway, who was in the movie The Graduates, who played Dr. Mark Frank, uh, St. Elsewhere, who was the voice of Kent and Nightwreck. He's one of the most accomplished, well-trained actors in the world acting with Vader. It's Vader time, it's Vader time. And he's like, okay, Mr. Vader. And people, like, just loved it, and so... We wanted to do more episodes, and, uh, you know, the big one that a lot of people remember, and I am so proud that I pulled this off, because I I was scared. (laughs) So I'm on the phone with Pritchard, and I say, okay, we want Leon again, and the story is basically uh, Frankie is searching for his father's love. He doesn't have his father's love, because Frank is a poet. He doesn't know wrestling. Yes but Corey does so you know kind of like the famous Cyrano uh, or done later by Steve Martin in the movie Roxanne Corey is feeding Frankie wrestling information to gain his father's love and now his father is so happy with his son they're bonding there's love there it's fantastic and then he says well Frankie You got to be ringside Saturday night. I got my big match with um, uh, Jake the Snake Roberts, and the winner gets a shot at Shawn Michaels' title. You got to be there, Frankie. You have to be there. And Frankie turns to Corey, and Corey just shrugs. He can't be there because it was the same night as the Pana Sweet 16. So that was the story, and Pritchard said, love it. You got him. And he goes, I'm going to throw you one more thing. I go, what? He goes, brother love. We'll yeah, because he, he was
2: in the ring at the beginning when at that live event. He was announcing them coming down to the ring.
3: Exactly, exactly. So we were thrilled about that. And so Michael Jacobs is saying, "Blum, what are you doing? What's going on? Wait a minute. We're going to shoot half the episode during a live house show at the pond in Anaheim? I'm like, Yeah. He goes, I'm not going. (laughs) You handle it. (laughs) So he he, he didn't even come down. And I walked in, and, you know, I got there early, of course. And, you know, it was a blast. And Corey and Sean, you know, Ben and Ryder, and um, they were just having such a blast meeting everybody, you know. And um, Goldust was there, and uh, Shawn Michaels, they were working each other. And uh, it was just amazing. And I thought, okay, this is gonna, this is gonna be smooth. The, the, the workers are really happy. They all knew Boy Meets World, so they were excited. And uh, we pre-taped some stuff before the house got let in. And then the house got let in, and they were a rabid group. You know, I don't have to tell you what what a house, a house filled with fanatics is like. And these guys were going crazy. And then it was announced to them before the show started that their favorite show, Boy Meets World, is going to be filming some scenes live during the show. Boom! (laughs) (laughs) They just, you know, it's like, you know, the smart mark crowds, you know, like Chicago or Cleveland or whatever. They know, regardless of how they feel, they know the reaction they need to give. And so now I'm in the curtains and I'm watching this and now I'm scared. And um, basically there were parts where uh, all the kids uh, were Corey, Sean and Frankie were in the ring uh, dancing around with Vader and Jake was throwing the snake at him, Damien the snake. And they were selling perfectly. And then we had to have them running in and out of the arena during the match, during the Vader-Jake match, and then do dialogue. Well... I'm sitting near ringside, and I'm hearing while these guys are doing their dialogue, you know, writer's going, "I don't know if we can pull this off, Corey." I mean, Tang is starting; she's on to us, and we got to get back there in one minute. And I don't know. what Frankie needs us here, and they're doing their dialogue, and I'm hearing fans from twenty feet away, away yelling, "Corey's Sean's lover!"
2: Oh no! Oh no!
3: And Feeny love sean and i'm giving you the clean version right now right you can imagine what they were really saying and so when the episode was done days later and i got into editing well all the heckling from the audience all those things they were saying screaming out to Corey and sean about loving feeney a little too much etc it was married to the to the track with the dialogue.
2: Right. Oh gosh, that must have been a nightmare to edit.
3: So we tried to clean it up, and we couldn't. So ultimately, we had to bring the boys in to do ADR to right. re record all their all their dialogue. But um, it was fun. I mean, backstage we cut some promos with Leon. That, in fact, you know, I got to reach out to Bruce and see who's got them because we did a bunch of backstage promos. Uh, I was in one where. One of the other writers who was there, Vader went off on and knocked down. and You know, I played the role of the guy who kneels down and he's oh, somebody, get help quick! <laughs> you know, and we did all those things, and I, I would love to find them. They're around somewhere. Um, and then, you know, I think he came back one or two other times, and um, I just love that I got away with it, that I was able to film a sitcom, a live WWF house show in front of 18,000 people. Nobody's ever done that before in the history of comedy. When
2: wrestling. wrestling. Thank you very
3: much. I am fear. I'm not one of your punk students. I'm the face of death.
2: So many great stories, so many great tidbits from Mark, and there's more to come in the following weeks, too. But first, we're going to kind of... Change gears here, but still stay in the same vein, kind of. We're gonna do a pop and wrestling connection that we've done once before. We're revisiting our Boy Meets World pop and wrestling connection in honor of Mark. Okay, so I put out the question on my Twitter. We find out that Frankie, the character from Boy Meets World, has grown up to have three children. They've all taken after their grandpa Vader and become wrestlers who work in the business today. Who are Frankie's children and why? Please be creative. We had a lot of good answers. Our first answer comes from good guy Dave at Dave Pazeski. Kid one, Samoa Joe. Because he's an imposing man just like Vader was. Kid two, Jeff Cobb. Because he's an incredible competitor like Vader also was. Kid three, Jordan Grace. And I love that choice. Because she would want to make her Vader proud. I love that because they all seem like they could be Vader's kids. Really mm-hmm. creative choices, Dave. Then we've got the New Age Insiders at New Age Insiders. Great question. I'm going to say Braun Strowman, Brian Malonis, and Velveteen Dream because I'd like to see them explain that last one. (laughs) And actually, it's funny. I said Velveteen Dream, I think, the last time we did this question, and how I would explain it is that Frankie, which is uh, Vader's son in the show, had a traveling poetry tour and would have, you know, basically conceived the baby with somebody out of town when he was traveling <laughs> during his poetry tour. But uh, New Age Insiders followed it up and said, I'd like to think that if Angela didn't wind up with Sean on the show, she could have wound up with Frankie, thus producing <laughs> Velveteen Dream, who would essentially be then Vader's grandchild as well.
1: Our next one is from at the Habiki TMD, and he says, Beer City Bruiser.
2: Yeah, I think that was one of my answers as well last time. Um, I'll actually play you guys my original answers at the end of this.
1: Next one is from Boar Meets World, and he says, Walter is the only one I can think of, and that's an imposing guy, kind of like Vader was.
2: Walter would work. (laughs) I would say that's a good enough answer rj at krasinski rj one elias because every family has one talented grandkid Two nikki cross because everyone has a crazy chick and finally charlotte because you have to have someone that just has it all
1: Uh, next one is from at deej kirkby and he says here we go kid one otis dozovich because he's a big strong boy just like his potential pops uh kid two would be uh, Los Federales Santos Jr., another big, strong lad, great character. Watch out for him. And kid three, Sasha Banks, looks like her mother and takes after him, bosses her big brothers around.
2: I like that a lot. Smart to death at smart to death. Elias, because it just makes sense to me for some reason. Otis, because of his looks and size. And Shayna Baszler, because she is terrifying. And so was Vader. There you go. I love that third answer. And then Mark actually gave us his answers. He said he would choose Nia Jax, Kevin Owens, and Asuka as an adopted child.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know the show that well, but I guess if I'm going to give you three... Uh... I'm going to go off the map on one, and I'll probably steal a couple people's answers just going by Vader and thinking what his grandkids would look like. How about my one off the map? How about Delirious from Ring of Honor?
2: Oh, my God, yes. Kind of looks
1: like he could be related in some way, especially with the mask, too. I like that. Uh, I kind of like Dozovich. I think that's a good answer, and uh, I think Malonis is a good answer, too
2: i like all of your answers and for not knowing the show very well you really always surprise me how you just pull out these answers well, but
1: I, I cheated off some of our our listeners so i can i can't say i got full credit there delirious was on my own though
2: well i think that was the best one of all actually okay. so for mine i'm gonna be a little lazy but i loved my first set of answers so much you know some of them have been said but one of them has not been and i'll play you what i originally said right now But my answer's kind of weird, so hang in here with me for a second, okay? So if you guys remember a few years ago, Osprey and Ricochet had this great Best of Super Juniors match, but a lot of people took offense to the match because it was so full of flips. Some people were saying, oh, that's not wrestling. One of those people was Vader. And then later, Osprey had a match against Vader that used it as part of an angle. Yeah, Vader didn't like all the flips, he doesn't like all these new kids messing up what wrestling's supposed to be. So they used it for their advantage. So in a crazy twist of events, guys, we find out that Osprey is actually the grandchild of Vader. And he doesn't even know it. It's revealed to him that Frankie had a child out of wedlock, of course, with a random woman when he was over in Britain. I'm gonna take the philosophy of some of my followers who also said Frankie had a traveling poetry tour. So on that tour, he meets a woman, and he doesn't know that she gives birth to a child. That child is Will Ospreay. And later, come to find out, Osprey and Vader, they just don't see eye to eye. I guess genetics have nothing to do with size, nothing to do with looks, and nothing to do with styles of wrestling, because these are two insanely different type of wrestlers, but yet somehow I'm connecting them as being related. But you know what? I like it, it works, and it makes for a good story, which is what wrestling's all about. So then, another weird one and another out of wedlock child that Frankie had, and it would be Vader's grandchild, would be Velveteen Dream. Yes, it's weird, but you know, Velveteen Dream has like a flair for dramatics. I think in a way he's kind of poetic when he talks, and in the way he dresses, and he's obviously very artistic, like Frankie. So obviously, he could definitely be Frankie's child, and he's nothing like Vader, but you know, whatever. I think it works. And Beer City Bruiser. And I think he'd be the perfect grandchild to Vader because he's big, he's intimidating. I think they would get along great. And I think, like, in my little wrestling, Boy Meets World crossover world that I've created in this crazy question, I feel like Vader would know about Beer City Bruiser. It would be Frankie's only child that he had in a marriage the only child he really fully knows about. And Beer City Bruiser would be close with Frankie, but also close with Vader. I mean, can you imagine them sitting around, hanging out, knocking back a few beers? Man, that would be great.
0: When this meets- Wrestling. Thank you very much.
1: I am fear. I'm
3: not one of your punk students. I'm the face of death.
1: So some fun answers and great stuff from Mark Blutman, who we'll hear a lot more of uh, in the uh, weeks to come, because I think you talked to him for like an hour and a half.
2: I did, because he's such a fascinating guy. And God, it was such an honor to talk to him. It's crazy to me that a show I watched growing up, like a show that I loved and idolized and that meant a lot to me in my life, somebody who helped produce that show listens to us (laughs) talk about wrestling. It's like blowing my mind. Like this is a show that I've loved and like, Head in my heart for a very long time and one of the people who made it possible to, he listens to <laughs> us it's like a mark out moment yeah it was pretty so cool we got to thank mark for his time thank you so much it really meant a whole heck of a lot to me yeah i was
1: only around to talk to him at the very beginning as i got you set for the interview but uh, really nice guy glad he listens to us and uh, glad uh, we help uh, soothe him as he goes off to dreamland <laughs> 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 but now it's time to close out the show and send them home Kelsey, what do you got?
2: Well, this week I'm kind of plugging some things in the future to come. You know, we kind of promoted on our show, and I've been promoting on my Twitter, that we're going to do Either Or and Kelsey Likes, my two new live shows, every week. But instead of doing both of them every week, I think I'm going to do Either Or and then Kelsey Likes. So one week will be either or, the next Kelsey Likes, the next either or. So I think it'll be bi-weekly for both of them because it's just too hard for me to find a place to do either or on Mondays during the day. So really, the only time I could do either of these shows are Wednesday nights. So... It's going to have to be bi-weekly. Yep. So my next Either or, or is really tough. It's going to be choosing between G1 Supercard and NXT TakeOver and which one kind of looks more exciting to me and which one I'm more amped up for. That'll be a hard one, but I'll also put it out to the public. Hopefully people will be unbiased, and uh, I really only want people to vote if they kind of like both promotions. Not if they dislike one and only like the other. So guys, please try to be fair on the poll.
1: <laughs> the G1 Supercard, certainly the more loaded of the two shows, but obviously NXT TakeOver, obviously a condensed and concise show and always really flows really well. And it's setting up to be a good one once again.
2: Yeah. It's going to be tough for me to choose which one. Cause I'm really hyped up for both.
1: And that's all taking place next week in New York. And uh, we want to hype uh, what, what we're going to do next week. Starts with our podcast next week. We'll look forward to G1 Supercard. We'll look forward to WrestleMania. We'll talk a little bit about TakeOver, even though we're not going to that. We're going to talk about the other shows we're going to, which is the uh, Rev Pro and uh, WrestleCon. So we'll talk about that. And we're also going to do what we did a year ago and take a, a look at the stocks of wrestlers whose stock has gone up since last WrestleMania or WrestleMania weekend, whose stock has gone down. And we'll look at the people from our, our discussion last year and see maybe where they've come and gone uh, in the last year. So that'll be fun. Also a reminder, make sure you pay attention to our social media in New York, because we'll be doing our spare change after all of our shows to giving you uh or all the shows that we're going to giving you our review and everything that we thought was great about the show. So a huge, busy week next week.
2: Yeah, it's going to be insane, but I can't wait. No,
1: it's going to be awesome.
2: Yeah, it will be awesome. And something else that's awesome is you guys' support that you give to us every week. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for listening to us. Thanks for watching us. If you're checking us out on YouTube, we both truly appreciate it. It means the world to us because we know your time is valuable, and we value your time. So thanks so much for giving it to us. Thanks for watching or listening. Take care. That's all for us this time. That's the finish